Good morning. Today's passage is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider now how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right, would you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the privilege of getting to gather together. And we thank you for the truth that you have called us into this place, that you have invited us in doing so into your very presence. So God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, fill us with the proper awe and reverence, but also, God, help us to, to recognize the love and the grace that's demonstrated in your drawing us near. Father, help us to long for that. Help us to long for this place, for your presence. And we ask all of this as we engage with your word. Uh, God, help us to see your son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, there is a, uh, a reality about myself that for a long time growing up, I, I tried to suppress, if not outright deny. I'm seeing if you're nervous. Uh, <laughs> That reality is that I am an introvert. Um, you know, and I'm sure you're all thinking like, shocker. Um, no, so it was, it was hard for me to come to terms with that reality, um, especially when I was younger, because I thought with that, I was then owning some things that I didn't really want to own. I thought if I said I'm an introvert, that people would automatically assume you know, that I was antisocial or that I didn't like people, and, and neither of those things is true. But I didn't want that to be how people saw me. But by the time I got to be about 18, you know, that, that, that reality was undeniable. So I felt like I, I should just stop trying to deny it. Now, being an 18-year-old as a senior in high school at the time, um, I wasn't really one for nuance at that stage of my life. So I went from like, no, I'm not this, to I am totally this. Like, I am an, I am an introvert, hear me roar. Uh, and, and I started declaring, you know, that it was my dream to, to move into the woods and to live by myself. I was going to live off the land. Now, of course, I was dating Katie at the time that I was saying these things, and she didn't really love that. Um, so it just goes to show how like, lovely and understanding she is. Um, but right around that time, and, and this is probably good, uh, 
I, I saw a movie that kind of poked a hole in my isolationist utopia, or my vision of it at least. This movie is called Into the Wild, um, and it's based on a book uh, written by John Krakauer of the same title. And this movie, it's based on a, a true story. It's about a young man named Christopher McCandless, who came from a wealthy family, uh, and after graduating from Emory University as a top student and athlete, uh, instead of going off to the lucrative career that everyone kind of expected him to do, uh, he decided to give away all of his savings to charity, get rid of all of his possessions, and go off into the Alaskan wilderness, right? like my dream. He's going to go live in the woods by himself. The story, though, takes a sharp turn. Um, it, it ends tragically with uh, McCandless dying in the woods, living by himself. He um, he died in an abandoned bus uh, after living in, uh, Alaska, in the Alaskan wilderness for 113 days, surviving off of squirrels, birds, roots, and seeds. Uh, he ultimately died of starvation, and what, what ended up happening was uh, he ate some seeds that he didn't know were poisonous, and so it really weakened him so that he couldn't go out and forage for more food, and as he began to, start, as he began to not eat, he was weaker and weaker, and he, again, died alone in an abandoned bus. Well, there goes my vision of life alone in the woods, right? On the one hand, I, I really liked the idea of being in nature by myself, but again, on the other hand, I really did not want to meet that same end. But what really got me um, what really got me thinking wasn't the reality that, that he suffered this fate. It was actually something that he wrote uh, in his journals, one of the very last things that we have recorded from him. Uh, McCandless kept extensive uh, journal record uh, of his time. Uh, was, he, he was reading a book, and in the margin of this book, again, this is, these are some of the last words that we have from him. He said, happiness is only real when shared. Happiness is only real when shared. You know what? That truth, I think, is completely affirmed by the Bible. Right? The Bible tells us the story of a God who has eternally existed in loving community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this God created human beings in His own image. And part of that image, part of what it means to be created in the image of God is that we are, in our very essence, relational beings. We were made to, to relate to God and to one another, and we will not find true happiness, true satisfaction if we're not connected to both God and one another. And we see that truth demonstrated in this section of Hebrews 10. After affirming the amazing reality right, that we now have access to God through Jesus, our text quickly shifts to the life that we are meant to live together. Like it or not, the Bible affirms over and over again that Christianity is a team sport. We need to be in it together. The 18th century pastor and theologian John Wesley recorded in his journal that he had an encounter with a, quote, serious man uh, that, that shaped him and shaped his ministry. Uh, he said that this man said to him, quote, Sir, you wish to serve God and go to heaven. Remember, you cannot serve him alone. You must therefore find companions or make them. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. 
Those words became a sort of mantra for Wesley, and I think that they ought to serve as that for us as well. The Christian life is a life together. So this morning from Hebrews 10, we're going to look at three aspects of our life together. The foundation of our life together, the need for life together, and the gift of life together. So we're going to start now with the foundation of our life together. And the foundation of our life together is laid out in verses 19 to 23 of our text. I'm going to go ahead and read those for us now. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so what is the foundation of our life together according to these verses? It's the gospel. Before going on to urge us to meet together and describing some of the aspects, some of the characteristics of our life together, the author of Hebrews briefly summarizes the good news of the gospel, rooting our unity, our community life in the work of Jesus on our behalf. Verse 19 tells us that we can now have confidence to enter the holy places This declaration reminds us that at one time, we didn't. In the Old Testament, there was one place that was truly seen as holy, and it was called the Holy of Holies. There you go. Now, the thing that made the Holy of Holies so holy was its connection to the presence of God. And because it was so holy, it wasn't accessible to ordinary people. It was in the innermost chamber of the temple in Jerusalem, and it was separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain, illustrated by the curtain behind me. In the Old Testament, only the holiest person, the high priest, on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, only he was allowed to enter, and he did so at great personal risk. Because despite the fact that he was the holiest person, he was doing it on the holiest day, he was entering before a holy God whose holiness he could not match. And so one false step, one wrong move, one, you know, bit of, of, uh, one la- bit of lack of reverence, you know, he, could, he could lose his life. But in Jesus, we have a greater high priest who shed his own blood instead of that of an animal to atone for our sins. He followed God's law perfectly, satisfying the holiness and justice of God. And by believing in him, Jesus imputes or he gives us his righteousness so that when we stand before God, we don't do so with our own record, which is chocked full of sin, or we don't do so on the record of a mere human whose record would also be chocked full of sin. No, we get to do so. We get to stand before God our God, with Jesus's perfect record. In his death, Jesus tore down the curtain which separated us from the Father. This literally happened when Jesus was on the cross. The temple, the, the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing 
this new reality that we now have access to God through Jesus. And now, because of Him, we can enter into God's presence without fear, with confidence, we're told in this passage. Jesus lived the life that we, that we should have lived, and He died the death that we deserve so that we can have true, lasting, eternal life with God. So that is what's being established here in these verses. But I think a question that's worth considering is why is he telling us here in a a passage where he goes on to describe our life together? What does the gospel have to do with us relating to one another, with our community life? Well, the answer is everything. The gospel has everything to do with our relating to one another. See, every single one of us, every person in this room, every person on this planet is obsessed with righteousness. Now, you may not think of it using that term, but every person is obsessed with measuring up, with finding some way, something that sets, sets them apart, some way of defining why we matter, something tangible that we could point to. T.S. Eliot, in his play The Cocktail Party, wrote, Half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. We are all engaged in an endless struggle to think well of ourselves. So we want to be better looking, to be a better student, to be a better performer at work. We want to be a better son or a daughter. We want to be a better parent. We want to be smarter, funnier, wiser, more creative, more compassionate. We want to find something to latch on to, something that will set us apart, thinking this will be the thing that justifies me. But you know what that mentality does to a community? it destroys it. See, if I'm, justi- if I'm justifying myself based on my performance, then everyone else is going to be a threat. If someone does something better than me, then I can't appreciate their giftedness. No, they, they become an existential crisis that I have to solve. Without the gospel, again, if we are, are, are sticking to this, this quest to justify ourselves, I'm either going to compete with other people or I'm going to judge them. So what is our way out? Grace. The gospel of grace. Knowing that I am justified not by what I do, but by what God has done for me as a sheer gift of grace. See, Jesus didn't die for us because we were good enough. No, he did because we could never be on our own. And that reality is what shakes us out of the endless struggle to think well of ourselves. The fact that we are saved despite ourselves can free us from the tendency that we have to compete with and judge one another. The gospel tells you that despite your performance, you're going to be okay. That you are loved that you are secure, that you have a place 
And that gives us a peace and a security that is otherwise impossible. So other people are no longer threats when we view the world in this way. You can just be, and you can accept other people for who they are, not in how your performance measures up to theirs. The gospel is the foundation of our life together. But life together is not an accessory. It is essential. So now let's look at the need for life together. I want to look again at verse 23 and into verses 24 and 25. So let's read together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So verse 23 ends the the gospel section with the encouragement to hold on to the hope of the gospel, hold on to what we are confessing. But in the Greek, verses 23 through 25 are all one sentence. So this is all one continuous thought. And the author is basically saying, with the gospel in mind, let's now consider our life together. For him and throughout the Bible, there is this undeniable link to our life with God and our life with one another. Again, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. We are meant to continually access gospel truths together, stirring up one another with it and encouraging one another in and through it, meeting together. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his fantastic book, Life Together, wrote, A Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. We need one another. Now, that truth, the fact that we need one another, that we need other people, it goes against a lot of our basic assumptions See, in our culture, we have a tendency to praise the one who is quote-unquote self-actualized, the one who defines oneself apart from belonging or attachment, the one who has discovered his or her authentic self. And it's commonly believed that the authentic self can only be found by oneself, you know, off in the woods by yourself. That was my dream, no. Now, some of the philosophical underpinnings of this mentality can be attributed to Martin Heidegger, who's a 20th century German philosopher. Uh, In his influential work, Being and Nothingness, he decries our proclivity to get lost in the, quote, they. And he defines the they not as a distinct group, but as the ones or forces that have established our social defaults. They are the ones who are pictured when, when you hear things like, you know, they say you shouldn't wear white after Labor Day, or um, they say our love won't pay the rent. Like, who are they? But in Heidegger's vision, the authentic self is discovered when one has the courage to rise above the they. And Jean-Paul Sartre, who is a contemporary of Heidegger, uh, he, he strikes a similar chord in his, his play, No Exit, 
when he declares through one of his characters that, quote, hell is other people. Now, you may have never read Heidegger or Sartre, and I'm not necessarily recommending that you do, but their ideas have deeply shaped our culture. Their, their vision of individualism is part of the air that we breathe living where we do. But this way of thinking, it leads to isolation, and isolation is destructive. And research has shown this. Now, there's an experiment conducted a while back in which uh, scientists got a group of people together, and they, they've conducted this over and over again because that's how science works. Um, they, they got a group of people together to play a game of catch. Right? So the ball is going back and forth, and people are having a good time, whatever. But the scientists set up the game with one condition. Right? Unbeknownst to them, one member of the group would never have the ball tossed their way. Meanest experiment ever. Right? <laughs> Well, researchers discovered that the ostracized person will testify to an increased sense that life is meaningless and devoid of purpose. The game is just a way, though, of pulling back the curtain on a fundamental human need. We need each other. Loneliness is a huge problem in ours and other Western cultures today, and this is dangerous. Loneliness and feelings of isolation are linked to cardiovascular disease, dementia, and depression. And according to some researchers, its effect on mortality is similar to that of smoking and worse than that of obesity. One study revealed that it can increase the risk of an early death by as much as 30%. We were made for community. We need each other. And contra Heidegger and Sartre, I think that it is in community, especially Christian community, that we find our true and authentic selves. And I think that this is part of the gift of life together. Right? And that's what we see in verses 24 and 25. Life together provides some tangible gifts. The church is a place where we are refined and comforted. And I want to look at, at each of those things. Uh, we're we're going to start with the refining work first. Right, what we see translated in verse 24 as stir up is, is a, a Greek word. It's one Greek word. And that word literally means irritate. We are to irritate each other. And, and some of you may be thinking, yes, I've had many irritating experiences at church. Thank you very much. But that's not necessarily what's being talked about here. Now, the goal, what's envisioned in this text is that we are connected to each other enough where we get, where we have the privilege of challenging one another in gracious and loving ways. Or we are always, always, always to speak the truth in love. But we need to be invested enough in each other's lives where we can refine one another, where we can, where we can be in sharpening relationships helping one another to be the people that God is calling us to be. And this is what we ought to want for ourselves. Now, in order for this to happen, we need to fight the temptation to be overly committed to our comfort. Now, when I was thinking about this, uh, mountain biking came into my head. I've, I've mentioned over the last few years that I've gotten really into it. I'm not good, 
but I do it a lot. Um, on most weeks, I, I go like four to five, uh, excuse me, for, yeah, four to five times a week. And I really love being out there. But when I first started writing, um, I write primarily in the canyon that's like a mile from here um, because it's a mile from my house as well, so I can get there in about 10 minutes. Uh, but when I first started writing, I, I would go close to every day, but I would ride one trail. And it's a trail called Coyote Run. And it's a blast. I, 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 I you know, was content, again, doing it every day. And, and I, we, we were hanging out with some friends um, pretty soon after I I got my bike and was riding every day, and I was pretty excited about the fact that I was riding every day. And uh, it's, all of our friends are married with kids now, so the dad asked me, um, you know, how is mountain biking? So I was excited to tell him. He says, what trails do you ride? And I'm like, Coyote Run. He's like, that's awesome. My kids ride that. <laughs> that's cool. His kids are seven and eight. So I'm like, all right. Thanks, man. Um, so one of, the, one of the challenging things, though, about our canyon is we've got, like, on this side of it, we have one green trail, Coyote Run, and then everything else is black. So green is beginner, black is more, I mean, it's not double black, whatever. But black is challenging, and for me, they were terrifying trails, like, absolutely terrifying. Um, so if I were left to myself, I would still just be riding Coyote Run, like, three years later, having a great time. But thankfully, I had a friend, a friend in church, uh, who irritated me, and no, uh, who, who helped me, who came alongside of me and literally kind of paved the way for me to learn how to do these more challenging trails. Um, so I just kind of got to follow behind him. And I'm really grateful that I got to do that. Right? Now I, I can ride four trails instead of just the one. It's a, it's a blast. But friends, that is exactly what we need in our spiritual lives as well. People who will come alongside us and irritate us, spur us on to do things that we wouldn't necessarily do on our own. Help us do things that we actually need. To push us to pray, to learn, to serve, to give. To find life. A life that is so much more fulfilling than what we've gotten comfortable with. So consider, are you open to this? Are you open to people coming alongside you to help push you, propel you forward? To help you become the person that God is calling you to be? The person that you really want to be deep down? Are you open to input? And also consider, are you willing to do this for other people? Are you willing to put yourself out there to walk alongside someone in need? It is often an uncomfortable task. And it should be seen as a commitment to walk alongside someone. The call of this passage is not like to, to pass by someone and drop a truth bomb and go about your day. No, if you're going to stir, stir someone up to love and good works, you are committing to know them and to help them. Now, we should recognize that the scope of this is limited. We're to stir one another up to love and good deeds. We're not called to stir people up based on politics or tastes or parenting styles. To do all of this, we need to have a degree of humility. We need to recognize, I don't necessarily know everyone. So again, this is where this is a commitment to relationship, to knowing someone, to learning from someone, and gently lovingly helping someone to see things perhaps in a different way. 
All right. So we stir each other up. This is a good and, and lovely thing when it's done well. But that's not the only task in the church. But we are also to encourage one another. And the word translated encouraging in verse 25 is the Greek word parakaleo, which can also mean comfort. It's related to the word for, uh, to one of the names given to the Holy Spirit, parakletos. Right? The Spirit is our comforter. And in the church, we get to comfort, by comfort one another by encouraging them. Right? The church is not a boot camp where we come in to be made into all that we can be. Now, it's a place where we are spurred on, refined, pushed, but it is also a place where we should find love and care, comfort and rest. So another thing worth considering, who are you encouraging in the church? Who are you comforting and caring for? Have you shared kind words of hope or comfort with someone lately. The church needs both people to spur us on and to show us the love and care of Jesus. And I think that the church can be a place where we find both of these things because grace is at the very foundation of who we are and what we do. Grace has the capacity to compel us forward and it can give us peace and comfort that is unmatched in this world. Now, one of the things that can, uh, that can get in the way of the church doing either of these things well, and one of the things that we often need to move past is our vision of the ideal community. I think many of us have this. And so often we, we can hold on to that vision to the expense of the actual community that's in front of us. Uh, in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, there's a scene in which a doctor recounts to an elder in a monastery. He says, this is good, he says, the more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. <laughs> he says, in my dreams, I have often come to making enthusiastic schemes for the service of humanity, and yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. Now, this unfortunately is quite common because people typically don't live up to the ideals that we dream of in our heads. But holding on to that is destructive because sometimes we become so consumed with the vision of what the church should be that it keeps us from loving the actual people that God has placed in our midst. And so Diedrich Bonhoeffer warns, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. And friends, praise God that he didn't love an ideal of humanity more than the actual human beings that occupy this planet. Because if that were the case, none of us would have chance. This again is why grace needs to be the foundation. And we grow in grace as we show it to one another. But the only way that that can happen, the only way that we can experience any of this is if we don't neglect meeting together. We need to be together. So as Tom mentioned before, you guys are all here. Good job. All right, step one. All right, 
there is a reality to the fact that I can't be spurred on or encouraged if I'm not doing life with other people in the church. So step one is showing up. Step one for you guys is accomplished, nicely done. But that is step one. It is key, it is pivotal, but it doesn't end there. We need to further engage. So again, consider, what are some ways that you can further engage with the church? What are some ways that you can do life more intentionally together? Are there ways that you want to serve? Right? Do you have gifts that you could use to help the church? And we, we have needs. Right? We always have needs with children's church or with music ministry or sound setup or ushering, greeting. Maybe you have a, a passion for missions or for local outreach. Maybe you want to consider joining one of those teams or, or, or coming alongside us when we go to the Orange County Rescue Mission. We do that once a month. And you know what? A lot of the people that serve consistently and have done so for years will tell you about the joy of serving. And they'll also tell you that this is one of the best ways to get to know people, right? It's a great place for spurring each other on and encouraging one another when you are serving alongside someone. We also have small groups that you can join, and there are plans to expand them. Uh, we have a weekly lunchtime prayer, so Wednesdays from 12 to 12.20, we gather on Zoom for, for a prayer time. Uh, we've got men's Bible study, women's game night. There's women's Bible studies on Tuesday nights and Wednesday mornings. Right? There are many, many forums. I didn't even mention the, stuff, the rest of the stuff that's happening this week. There are many forums for you right, to, get to, to, to get to enjoy fellowship with one another. Lots of places to plug in. So my encouragement to you is to not let those pass you by because life together is a gift. So if you have questions about how to get plugged in, about where you can go to, to, to get connected to these different events, please talk to me or to Pastor Tom or to Eva. We would love to help you get connected. But you also don't need to wait for a church event in order to do life together. I think many of you have homes. You can invite people into those homes anytime. There are so many different ways for us to do life together. And, and again, the more that we do that, the better off we are. The, the way, that's, those are the ways in which we can be spurred on to do love and good works. That is the ways that we can receive encouragement. But I think one of the greatest gifts of doing life together is that the more people that we get to know who know Jesus, the more of Jesus we get to experience. When I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking about my, my relationship with Katie. Uh, so I, you know, I mentioned I started dating Katie back when I was 18, um, which means that we've been together. So we've been married for 11 years. We dated for five years before that. So 16 years of, of life together. Um, and 11 of those 16 years were without children. Now, 11 years is like, I, I think at least, is a good chunk of time. That's um, funny saying that in a church because some of you think like, yeah, 11 years is a good chunk of time, and others are like, that's cute. Um, <laughs> but I think 11 years is, is enough time to feel like I know this person pretty well. But when Harper and Oliver, our two kids, came onto the scene, I feel like I got to know all sorts of different facets of Katie's personality that before were just, they were there, I'm sure, but I didn't get to observe them. 
So I got to know Katie in deeper and truer ways as I got to know people who also cared about Katie. Without Harper and Oliver, I wouldn't know aspects of Katie's creativity or, or her care. I wouldn't know uh, her resilience or um, her selflessness. And again, it's not as though those things weren't there, but I wouldn't have had some of those tangible opportunities to observe them. So as I've gotten to know my children more and see her through and see Katie through their eyes, I get, to, I get to see Katie more. And the truth is, if we're going to know a person, it's not enough to just know that person. We need to know other people who know that person as well. And friends, if that is true for a finite human being, how much more true is that of an infinite God? So the more people we know who know Jesus, the more of Jesus we get to know. I also think that is a fantastic motivation for evangelism, isn't it? The, the vision of this church is to know Christ and to make him known. So that means that, the, that those two things aren't, aren't separate. Right? The more people that we get to share the gospel with, the more people who come to know Jesus, the more Jesus we get to know as they encounter him. And that is, a, that is such a, a beautiful beautiful thing. Again, when we are in relationship with other people who know Jesus, the more Jesus we get to see. We're introduced to aspects of his personality and character that we would otherwise miss. Nuances in the word of God that other people are able to bring out that, you know, just fly right past you. And the more people we know who know Jesus, the more of Jesus we get. We need one another in order to know and follow Jesus well. So friends, let's do life together, yeah? Let's pray. Father, we we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your Son, who enables us to have true and right relationship with you. And God, we thank you for the gift of your church, which enables us to know you and your son all the more as we get to grow in a relationship with each other. So Father, I pray that you would help us to cling to community, to value our life together. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have prioritized other things. Uh, Forgive us for for clinging to lesser things that potentially get in the way of our fellowship with one another. But God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts by your Spirit, that you would draw us to yourself as you draw us closer to your people. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.